Good morning. My name is Shelley Thomas. Our passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find it on page 837 in the Bible um, under the seat in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Please take a seat and have a moment to reflect on God's word. I don't know if you caught that in Morgan's testimony when she um, was in the eighth grade and had a, a change of soul. Um, she went back to her church. She was planning on getting baptized, and the church split, and she went one way. And, you know, for some reason, she just never got baptized. And so I don't know if you saw the baptismal pool today, but she's going to get baptized today. And uh, I think that's great, and I say it not because that's what we're doing, uh, but I say it because, you know, uh, that could happen, that could, might have happened to somebody here in this room. Somehow, you made, made a commitment to Christ, you always thought you were going to get baptized, but, you know, you moved, or I don't know, something happened. And then you might just think, is it too late? Like, am I too old, or have I missed my time, or would I be too embarrassed to say anything? I don't know, whatever it would be. Uh, but I wouldn't want that to hold you back, and uh, I hope if that's holding you back today, Morgan's courage will, will help you with that. Uh, Jesus, as we talked about last week, grew up in a small town called Nazareth, and uh, Luke, as we looked at the passage last week, talked about his first sermon there, and we're trying to take a look at Jesus and how he operates, and here in Mark, we're not in Nazareth anymore, we're in Jesus's uh, hometown as an adult, his might say his base of operation for his ministry years, and he's in a little fishing village called Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee, it's on the north side, and it's the hometown of Peter, James, and John, and it's the place that Jesus typically went back to and operated out of. And you see here in chapter 2, he's actually coming back to Capernaum. He'd been on a little preaching tour in surrounding villages because that's Jesus' priority is to, pre- to, to preach or to proclaim the good news. And as Jesus got back into town, word travels fast when Jesus shows up. 
So the little uh, whisper campaign starts, hey, do you know Jesus is back in town? Perhaps he's staying at Peter's house, which was a common place for him to stay. But whatever happens is uh, the word gets out and crowds begin to gather at the house. People drop in what they have to do and they make their way towards this home. And all kinds of people are coming to this house. Trying to just interested in Jesus. What's, what's this new guy about? Or I heard him one time, you need to, I'm bringing my friend. And we notice here in this particular passage, some scribes came. These are the, the religious lawyers. They know everything about the Old Testament. So they can, they're people that you would access. Hey, I'm not sure what this passage means. I'm not sure what I should do. And if you were living at the time, you go find a scribe. And he'd say, well, this is the, how you're supposed to live. And basically, they were trying to keep people in line. This, this is the way you're supposed to be. And they're there to take notes about Jesus and to keep Jesus in line. Imagine that. You showing up to keep Jesus in line. So they're in this crowd. They're taking their notes. They're making their observations. Jesus begins to preach. The house fills up, and pretty quickly, it's standing room only. People spilling out of the doors, maybe a little disappointed they didn't get here sooner, maybe yelling at a spouse or a child and said, well, if you had just been on time, we would have been inside, but we're not out. We're outside. We're leaning. We're, we're on our tiptoes. We're trying to get a picture of who Jesus is. Maybe we're, we're trying to hear what he has to say. And unfortunately, four men carrying a paralytic just can't travel quite so fast. And I don't know if they had a sense of it as they're carrying him. They're huffing and puffing. They're breaking a sweat. And they could see people are going back by them pretty quickly. And they get to the house, and they can see from some distance, it's not going to be possible to get our friend in through the front door. And maybe they sat down for a moment in the front lawn and just thought, what do we what are we going to do? Is it, is it too late to get my friend in front of Jesus? Maybe they looked at the front door and there were some people crowding there. And as they walked up, of course, you would notice a man being carried by four other men. And, and they sort of acknowledged, okay, you're here. But then they turned back around as a way to close off the front door, as a, as a visual cue. Hey, you're not getting in this way. People on the inside are blocking the people on the outside from seeing Jesus. But these friends, you got to love these friends. I hope you have friends like these friends. I hope you are a friend like these friends. These are the kinds of friends that are determined. They're dogged. They're not going to give up. They're going to not get easily discouraged by uh, circumstances. They're going to figure out, and no matter what it takes... They're going to get their friend in front of Jesus. And we don't know what happened outside. Obviously, they had to have some kind of conversation to say, well, how are we going to get our friend in front of Jesus? Are we going to stuff him through the window? Is that possible? Do you know? You see anybody inside? Can he grab, they grab him? I mean, you don't know what's happening. Maybe somebody said, well, I can just like yell fire, and then the whole thing will empty out, and then we'll walk right in. I mean, you don't know how that conversation goes, but what we do know is they land on a kind of, risky plan. It's actually a little bit of a destructive plan. They decide, hey, you know, the house is here. They've got a little outside stairwell, and it ends up on a flat roof on the top. And it's a sort of an outside room in those days. If it was a cool night, you might sleep out there, a place that you would go up and try to get away from the activity inside to have a conversation. And they think, well, 
let's take off the roof. In the, in the Greek, it's let's, let's de-roof the roof. And that's their plan. And I don't know if somebody said, well, that's crazy. But anyway, they all agreed. They, they carried their friend up the outside stairwell. They got very quiet trying to figure out where do we hear Jesus? Because we want, we, want, we want to dig one hole. And we're going to try to get him right in front of Jesus. And, of course, if you're down below, you hear the little cloppity-clop of the people's feet. Pretty soon you notice some dust start coming from the ceiling. Maybe a few pieces of clay break off and get in your hair. Then a hand comes through the ceiling. I mean, talk about being distracted during a sermon. I mean, you think it's hard if a baby's crying, somebody's coughing. How about a hand comes through the ceiling right here? A hand is followed by a head. One head is followed by four heads. And they're all saying, this is it. We got the spot. We got the spot. And they, they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus. And oh, how I wish somebody had an iPhone right at this moment. <laughs> Just take a picture. You ever, you ever friends send you a picture and you see the, the person they're trying to photograph, but you look at all the people behind, you know, reactions. Imagine having a picture of this. The paralyzed man. I mean, you know, he's stuck. He can't move. How about the owner of the house? I mean, you know, my my roof. Some woman, it's in my hair. I can't, you know, she's worried about her hair. The, the, the wide eyes of these four heads, these wild friends who'll do whatever it takes. What about Jesus' face? What? What do you think he his face would look like? I think he I think he's laughing, honestly. I think he's got such joy at these faces because he looks at these faces and they're the faces of faith. He sees their faith, and Jesus loves faith. There's no meal he likes better than the meal of faith. And he's getting a buffet of faith from these four guys. And I think he's just laughing. I think he's got joy coming out of his every pore because of their desire to get their one paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. And then Jesus looks at them, looks at the man. You notice what he says? My son. can't wait to hear that from Jesus. My son, my daughter. I mean, I might just say, Jesus, stop right there. I just want to just absorb that. Before you say anything else, I just want, you can just say my son over and over for like 10,000 years. I'll be good with that. I am your son. But he doesn't stop there. He looks at his son and says, your sins are forgiven. Which is awesome, but a little puzzling, is it not? It's a little puzzling. Nobody's asking for sins to be forgiven. I'm guessing one of these wild-eyed guys is going, oh, Jesus, it's his legs. I mean, we came all this way. I mean, it's awesome you're going to fix him from the inside, but, you know, we need the leg thing done too. He has a sense of, 
the hearts of the people in the crowd, especially the scribes, they're skeptical. They're in the church. They're listening to Jesus. I don't know about Jesus. He's not fitting in the right lane. He hears that skepticism. Jesus has the authority to hear what's happening in every mind in a crowd. Who can forgive but sins but God alone? So Jesus addresses their skepticism. Why do you have these questions? I mean, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to, to tell this paralyzed man, rise, take up your mat and walk so that you, you skeptical scribe, you know that I have power to do both because I am the son of man. I'm going to forgive this man's sin and I'm going to tell him to stand up and walk. And he tells the man to stand and he stands. What a moment. What a moment. The man stands up. We don't know if he's been crippled for a week or his whole life, but he stands up. He grabs his mat, and these people who wouldn't have moved before, they're moving now. He's going out through the front door, and guess who's bounding down the outside stairway? These four guys. One guy just jumps the whole stairway. And imagine this clash that they have outside in the front yard. It's a celebration that, that never ends. Can you imagine these five guys getting together the next week for coffee? Dude! I mean, you know, every time the story gets bigger and bigger, does it not? But this is a story that could hardly even get bigger. You got your sons forgiven. You got called my son by Jesus. And, and you can walk. It's incredible. And for the rest of their lives, they replay this great story over and over again. The last part of this account one person from the inside says this, hey, we never saw anything like this. What an understatement. Who's seen something like this before? And my question for us this morning is what, what did they see? What, what do you see? What are we supposed to see in this passage just a man gets healed and walks out. What are, what are we supposed to see? And I want to suggest two things. We're supposed to see the authority of Jesus. And we're supposed to see the faith of these four friends. So let's look at this. The authority of Jesus. Jesus does something that was very unusual in verse 10. He plucks out an Old Testament name. And he applies it to himself. He's doing this all the way through the New Testament. Taking Old Testament shadows and saying, I'm the real thing. And this shadow he's taking comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's like the hero, a hero in the Jewish faith. He's one of the Jewish people who got captured and he faithfully lived in exile. He's Daniel in the lion's den. We know this story. Here's a man of tremendous faith. And Daniel is a man who's gifted with visions. And he has a number of visions through Daniel. And one of them is in chapter 7. And he has this vision of four different kingdoms in power. And all of the kingdoms are, are powerful, but very destructive. And it looks like there's just no way anybody's going to be able to control this sort of chaotic world government until he says this, Then in my vision, behold, the clouds of heaven broke open, and there came one like the Son of Man. 
the Son of Man. And listen to, to the description of the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days. This is God. He was prevent, presented before God. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, a kingdom of all peoples, dominance, everlasting dominion, which will never pass away and will never be destroyed. So every figure, every person in this room is looking for this figure who's going to be like the Son of Man. And Jesus says to these people, hey, I'm the Son of Man. I have all authority. I have all authority in this room right now. I have all authority over all of creation right now. All authority is resting in Jesus at this particular point. And he has the authority to do several things. Notice one of them. He has the authority to prioritize our problems. The paralyzed man's physical need was evident, but it wasn't ultimate. His physical need, everyone could see that, but Jesus could see something else, and he actually had a deeper problem. It was a spiritual problem. It's like the doctor in triage. You know, the doctor in triage, he's looking at several wounded patients, and he's saying, okay, this person has priority, or he's looking at one patient and saying, okay, this is the main problem. You got to fix this problem before you get to the broken leg. He triages this man, and he says, hey, I see that you need healing for your legs, but before you need healing for your legs, you need holiness in your heart. So Jesus looks at us, looks at this man, and he says to this man, I see your body's on a stretcher, but maybe what you don't see and maybe what no one else sees is your soul is on a stretcher too. And if we don't fix the problem of your soul, me just getting you to stand up and walk out of here, you're going to have a soul problem for eternity. So I'm, I'm prioritizing your problems here, ma'am. Man, your presenting problem, as significant and as serious as it may be, is not your ultimate problem. Your ultimate problem is in your soul. It's like if you have a cold virus, you have all these symptoms, a runny nose, a headache, a cough. You know that's a signal of a deeper problem. It's a problem of sin in our souls. We've separated ourselves from God, so our soul is on a stretcher. It's dying, and it's paralyzed. We can't fix it ourselves. We need somebody to pick us up and put us back into a right relationship. When I was doing Young Life, I tried to figure out how to you know, say this creatively a number of different ways, and one of the most effective ways is I give this little talk, and it might be about this particular passage. And while I was talking on the table, I would have a bowl, clear glass bowl with a goldfish in it. You know, the ones you win with the ping pong ball at the fair, you know, put it in the glass. You get a, who wants this goldfish anyway? I mean, so you get the goldfish swimming around. You're doing this talk and say, hey, it's like if I reach down and pull this goldfish out and I put it on a towel. All the students, call PETA. I mean, you know, so the fish is flipping around. And I would say, is the fish alive? Well, yes, it's alive, but it's dying. And if somebody doesn't pick it up and put it back in, it cannot get back in on its own. And who's that person? That's Jesus. 
He's going to pick up souls that are dying on a stretcher, and he's going to put them back in the right spot. That's what he does. That's why he sees this man's most significant condition is an internal condition. It's not an external condition. And I wonder if, if four of us could carry you to the feet of Jesus this morning. And you got to look up and say, Jesus, this is my main problem. What would you say? Is it possible that he could say, I see that problem. It's, it's a real problem. It's not your main problem. Your main problem is your soul is on a stretcher. And you need me to come in and pick that soul back up before we address any other problem. So Jesus has authority, has the authority to prioritize our problems. And thank the Lord, he has the, he has the authority to heal our bodies. He has the authority to heal our souls. Think about it. Jesus has the authority to look at our bodies and just by his words, they can be healed. He's going to look at a dead man's body, Lazarus, and he's going to say the same words to Lazarus as he said to this man. But Lazarus has been dead for four days. And he's going to say, rise, get up and walk. And when Jesus says those words, whether they're in this life or when you're buried and dead, when he says it, you're going to stand up and walk. He has the power to put your body back together again. That is awesome. And he says that in Revelation 21 verse 4. Jesus is going to come. He's going to wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. There's not going to be any mourning, no no crying, no more pain. All of these things will pass away. This news isn't great. It gets even better. He has the authority to heal our soul. He he sees the separation. He's going to pick us up and put us back into our right relationship with God. He's going to live the life that we should have lived. He's going to die the death that we deserve so that we might be back in a relationship with God. So when Jesus asked the scribes, well, which is easier? Which is easier to say to a man, get up and walk, or is it easier to forgive sins? What's the answer to that question? For Jesus, it's a lot easier to make somebody get up and walk because he knows to forgive sins comes at a pretty high price for Jesus. You may be familiar with the life of Johnny Erickson Tata. It's a woman who has, uh, was paralyzed at the age of 17. She became a quadriplegic in a diving accident, and she's now in her late 60s. She's written a lot of books on suffering, all of which I would recommend. She writes this in one of her books. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Imagine that. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what I mean because he knows me. He'll recognize me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship that we're now sharing in his sufferings. And, he will, and I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that this world 
in this world you will have trouble. That thing, it's been a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. Imagine writing that sentence. Then she closes with this. And now, if you want, you can send that wheelchair to hell. (laughs) One day. One day for Johnny. One day for you. It may not be today. He has the power. He has the authority to restructure you into a healthy, eternal body, and there will be no more pain. And greater than that, he can restructure a soul that's meant to glorify him. So Jesus has great authority That's one of the things that we need to see from this passage. The second thing that we need to see from this passage is the faith of these four friends. Like I said, I hope you have friends like this. One of the most curious uh, verses in this account is verse 5. Jesus saw their faith. Is, is Is it the four men's faith and this man doesn't have faith? Is it all five men? I mean, you're not sure. All the commentators are all over the place. What we know for sure, it was more than one person's faith. A lot of people had faith to get this man to Jesus. And this faith seems to be like a key that unlocks forgiveness from Jesus. When he sees that, he immediately goes to forgiveness of sins. And Jesus looks in these faces and sees faith. And I want to ask the question, well, what did he see? What did he see? I think he saw at least three things. Compassion, creativity, and confidence. He saw compassion. I mean, you don't, you don't go to this effort for somebody you don't like, for somebody you don't love, somebody you don't really care for. You, you're, gonna, you're only going to go to this kinds of extreme physically and, and, and take these kinds of risks for somebody that you really love. And what I think about when I think about the word compassion is passion in action. They didn't just have a passion like, oh, I hope something gets better. Their hope something gets better led them to say, I'm going to step in and be a part of a solution to make it better. I'm not just standing here and saying, that's terrible. I wish it would go away. No, I'm going to step in and say, I'm going to be part of the solution to help it go away. Their compassion, their compassion for this man was evident. They're not just praying for something to happen. They're actually saying, I'm going to get involved and By God's mercy, he can use me to change things. They have great compassion. They have great creativity. It's risky. It's a little bit destructive. But I love their creativity. Before they reach the front door, they know they can't get in. But they're willing to do whatever it takes. They're going to tear some things apart to get their friend in front of Jesus. And I hope when you just imagine in your mind this picture of them coming to the front door, people turning around that are all previously looking at Jesus, looking at them, and turning back as if to close them off from Jesus. I hope that picture brings great pain to your soul. 
that it would never be true of the people inside the church blocking the people outside from coming in to see Jesus. That's just crazy. Somehow the people inside were like, well, I got here on time. This is my seat. I like meeting at this time. Now, I know that's nobody in here. But it's very easy to become the person who actually blocks the way from people from seeing Jesus. The people on the inside. This is what I think is so great about Jesus' reaction. He's just so elated that they would say, I'm not going to. The hardest hurdle, I think, for these people, these four men, I don't think it was the roof. I think it was the coldness of the people inside. And they're not going to let the coldness of the people inside, because even though the people inside may be cold, they know Jesus is hot. And I got to get this person in front of Jesus no matter what it takes. And they're going to be massively creative in how they do that. And then they are confident. They're sold out on Jesus. They know Jesus changes people. However they know that, whatever they may have heard, how they may have changed them in some way, but they are rock solid positive that when you drop somebody down in front of Jesus, something can happen. And so they are supremely confident. And this compassionate, creative, confident faith moves Jesus to act. And I think he acts with great joy. And the reason I think that is I think he sees himself in them. Jesus saw a problem. We're the problem. We're on a stretcher. And he didn't just wring his hands in heaven and say, gosh, I hope something can happen. No, he volunteered. Father, send me. I want to step in to be a part of making a difference. And how much more creative can you come than being lowered through heaven's ceiling down into a major? No more creativity than that. And to say, I'm going to live the life that they should have lived. I'll take all the punishment so that they can be back together with us. And think about how supremely confident Jesus had to be. It's, I, I really can't even put this in my mind. But Jesus, part of the Trinity... From the beginning, part of the Alpha and Omega, he rests his life in the hands of a father and says, God, I'm going to die and I'm trusting you. You're going to bring me back to life. Think about the risk of that. Think about the distance Jesus had to be, be willing to come for that to happen. But he knows Jesus is supremely confident in God. And when he sees these three men displaying what he displays, oh, he's ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive. Now, let's just ask a couple of questions as we close here, maybe about you, maybe about us as a church. Do we have compassion for the spiritually paralyzed? Not passion, but compassion. I see a problem with my neighbor or the person I work with or my part, some part of my community, and I'm not just going, God, I'm in praying, 
Can you fix that? No, I'm, I have compassion. I'm saying, I'm, I'm, here I am, send me, I'm going to step in. You have that kind of compassion for the spiritually paralyzed. Maybe you've tried to bring some friend to Jesus and you've brought them the normal way. But they just don't want to go the normal way. And you say, well, I invited them to church. Don't, don't give up. Don't give up. There's some other way. Be creative. Think about another way you can get Jesus in front of this person, a, a friend, a book, a, a revival. I mean, I don't know what it could be, but don't, don't give up. Don't be one of these friends who's going to say, I don't care how discouraging it gets. I'm going to keep going until this person gets in front of Jesus. I just wonder, I would, I would want someone to say, whatever they're doing at Christ's community, they're going to get Jesus in front of you somehow. They're going to figure that out. That's what I would want. That's what I would want from me. That's what I would want from you. Of course, we want to ask if we're able to make room. Finally, and maybe most importantly for a few of us, I wonder if you just see your soul is on a stretcher. Or do you just say, well, I have this problem. And if Jesus could fix my then, then I'd be okay. And maybe you don't yet see, hey, your soul is in danger. And whether he fixes that external problem or not, that doesn't matter compared to your soul. Only Jesus can take a soul off a stretcher and make it whole. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a lot to see in this passage. And we want to at least... Recognize your authority over all things, physical things, spiritual things. I pray that we would entrust ourselves to you. And Lord, I pray that we really would be like these kinds of friends. There wouldn't be any part of our makeup that would want to close people out. But instead, we would have compassion, we would have creativity We'd have supreme confidence that you actually change lives and we would bring people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.